Chapter 11 of The Empty Sack by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 11 It should be said for Jenny Follett that, in the matter of her course towards Bob Collingham, she had few of those convictions of sin and righteousness which restrain a proportion of mankind. As with the other members of her family, her conduct followed certain lines because she couldn't help it. That is as far as her analysis would have carried her, though analysis didn't give her much concern. Having so much to do to get food and clothes, the higher laws were outside her sphere of interest. Her chief law was necessity, and it covered so much ground that there was little place for any other law. It may be well to state here that the Follets belonged to that vast American contingent who have practically no religion. They had had a religion in Canada, where they had attended the church of a local god who seemed to hold no sway over the United States. They never found that church in the suburbs of New York, or, if they found it nominally, it didn't, in their opinion, seem the same. There were no local suasions and compulsions to bring them to its doors, and so, after a few spasmodic efforts to re-establish the connection, they gave up the attempt. Perhaps this failure was due to the fact that, in the depths of her strong, proud heart, Lizzie didn't believe in God. Josiah did, or at least he had believed in him up to the time of being thrown upon the scrap-heap. But Lizzie's faith in God had died with the dying of her faith in man. She had never said so, because she kept her deeper thoughts to herself. But along these lines her influence on her children had been negative. So Jenny had missed those counsels to do right, which sometimes form a part of domestic education. With so little latitude for doing anything, there was not, apart from the grosser vices, much latitude in the Follett family even for doing wrong. They did what they couldn't help doing, and there was an end of it. A kind of inborn rectitude kept them from offences of which the public would have taken note, but behind it there was little in the way of principle. Jenny went to her farewell meeting with Bob, untroubled by qualms of conscience. Even if scruples had worried her, they would have been allayed by the knowledge, imparted by Bob's own mother, that he had done her a great injury. He made the same kind of love to every girl he had known for an hour, and forgot her the next day. One of these days, the mother had said, some girl would catch him, and then he would be sorry. A girl hadn't caught him in this case, but he had caught a girl, and didn't know what to do with her. Having compelled her to go through a form of marriage, it was no more than a form, he was sailing off to the ends of the world, leaving her not so much as the protection of his name. She owed him nothing, and only the goodness of his angel mother was making up for what he owed to her. And on this side, Bob was so carried away by his romance as to have no conception of Jenny's attitude towards him. Seeing himself as a knight riding to the relief of a damsel in distress, it did not occur to him that the damsel could have a preference as to her deliverer. It was a matter of course that, from the window of the tower in which she was a prisoner, she would drop into his arms. In other words, Bob had his own view of the advantages of being a Collingham. They were great advantages, since they gave him the opportunity of being generous. He was in love with Jenny, largely because she was an exquisite object on which to spend himself. She was a gem, not in the rough, and in, yet in need of polishing, and though his own refinement was not so very great, he could throw refinement in her way. That is to say, 
love for Bob was very much a matter of giving himself out. Girls who could have brought him everything, and they were not scarce at Marillo Park, didn't interest him. They left no place for the selflessness which was the basis of his character. He couldn't precisely be called kind, since kindness implies some deliberation of the will. As the impulse of a fountain is to pour itself out, so Bob's impulse was to give, while Jenny was a crystal chalice wide open to receive. "'I want you to have everything in the world, Jenny darling,' he declared, bending above her as lovingly as a bench in the park would permit. "'I can't give it to you right off the bat, worse luck, but sooner or later I'll be able to dope you out every little wish. Good Lord, how I'll enjoy it!' "'What do you mean by sooner or later?' Jenny asks, with eyes downcast. "'When I get the family broken to the bit, I can't tell you in dates or time. They'll be hard in the mouth at first, and Mother pulls like the devil.' At this false witness, Jenny was revolted. No one knew better than herself the bigness of that maternal heart, which, as early as next week, would give liberal proof of its sincerity, when Bob's promises would still be in the air.' Bob had the afternoon at his disposal. The park offered itself as a delicious trysting-place because it was the month of May. In a nook where lilac and syringa overshadowed them and water glinted between lawns and glades, they sat discreetly side by side, and she permitted him to hold her hand. He went on to sketch his plans for the immediate future. His most trying lack was that of ready cash. The parental system had always been generous as to things, but penurious in money. In the matter of things, he would be as extravagant as he reasonably liked, so long as the bills were sent to Dad. Before he went to work at the bank, his allowance in money wouldn't have kept him in cigarettes. Even now, he was only on the weekly payroll for $38.66 per, handed him in a pay envelope. Food, lodging, clothes, saddle-horses, motor-cars, all these were thrown in extra, but in actual coin he didn't handle more than his two thousand dollars a year, like any other clerk. Jenny could see, therefore, that, to begin with, their position would be difficult, though only to begin with. He could send her a little money while he was away, but it wouldn't be very much. "'I don't want you to send me any,' she said hastily. "'You forget that I'm your husband, dear. If I didn't, you could bring an action for divorce on the grounds of non-support.' This idea being new to Jenny, she had it explained to her, rejecting it as a resource, because it was unromantic. "'And so, to be on the safe side against that,' he laughed, "'I've got this for you now.' Slipping an envelope from his pocket, he forced it into the hand he was holding. "'It's only a hundred dollars,' he was beginning to explain. She snatched her hand away as if he had been stung. "'Oh, Bob, I can't!' That situation amused him. It was one more proof of the naive honesty of the little girl. He knew how hard up she was, how hard up all the family must be, and yet money didn't tempt her. "'You're a funny little kid,' he laughed, drawing her as near to him as the park laws would permit. "'You'd think I didn't have a right to take care of you.' But Jenny was feeling that if she took this money she wouldn't be bound to him by principles more acute than the promises she had made before the parson. "'No, Bob, I can't. Please don't make me. Please!' But in the end he forced it on her, and she stowed it away in her little bag. 
By that time, too, she had reviewed the family situation. With a hundred dollars in her possession, they could less easily be sold out of house and home at the end of the following week. That calamity, at least, could be dodged, whatever other misfortune might overtake herself. She might decide that to be sold out of house and home would be easier than to bind herself further to Bob by using his money. But still, she would have the choice. As to the twenty-five thousand, there was always the possibility that it might not come in time. She had not yet seen Hubert. She couldn't see him till Bob had sailed. When she did, the other woman might be in her place, and her heart would have to break in spite of everything. Better it should break with a hundred dollars in her pocket than that she should be helpless to stay the family disaster. But when Bob sailed on the Monday, she was free to make the great test. Notwithstanding his definite farewells on the Saturday, he tried to see her again on the Sunday, but the necessity for secrecy made it possible for her to put him off. For one thing, she couldn't go through a second time such a good-bye as that of Saturday. Bob had been too much overcome. As unexpectedly to himself as to her, he had broken down. Braving all publicity, he had suddenly seized her hand, pressed it to his lips, and as he bent over it, she could feel his tears against her fingers. He hadn't exactly cried. He had only breathed hard with two great sobs. "'My God, how I love you, Jenny!' she had heard him muttering. "'How I love you! How I love you! How can I do without you all the time till I come back?' When he raised his head, he laughed sheepishly, though the tears were still on his cheeks. "'Forget it, little girl,' he begged unsteadily, wiping his cheeks and blowing his nose. "'I just worship you, and that's all there is about it. It breaks me all up to go away and leave you. But the time will pass, and if I can help it, I shall never go away from you again.' Defying the park laws once more, he had kissed her and kissed her. She had let him do it because she was so unnerved. Besides, she was sorry for him, and would have been sorrier still if she hadn't known that by tomorrow he would have forgotten her. That was always the way with fellows who took things so hard. The true love was too stern and strong to show emotion. Nevertheless, she had had an unhappy Sunday thinking of those two sobs. It was not until after ten o'clock on Monday morning that she was able to turn again to the compulsion of the man she loved. At ten, Bob sailed, and that episode in Jenny's life was probably behind her. By the time he came back, he would be in love with a girl of his own class, and eager to seize the freedom she, Jenny, would be in a position to deliver him. At last the way was clear. She had only to go to her lover and tell him she was there. She went that afternoon. Her plan was simple. She would say that if he had not yet found a model for the girl in the Byzantine chair, she was ready to do the work. The rest would come as a matter of course. Now that she was face to face with the task, her heart was oddly apathetic. "'I might be out to buy postage stamps,' she said to herself while crossing the ferry. Nonetheless, she wished she didn't have to look at this water down which Bob had sailed only four or five hours previously. Off toward the south, in the haze of the warm May afternoon, there was a giant steamer lying as if becalmed. It might be his.' There was one still farther out to see. That, too, might be his. 
Far down on the horizon, just passing out of sight, there was a little black spot with a pennon of black smoke. That could very easily be his. She watched it. It might be carrying him away to where he would forget her. Perhaps he'd forgotten her already. His mother had said, and his mother must know him, that he made love to girls one day and forgot them on the next, and it was already two days since Saturday. Very well, let him forget. Only it didn't seem as if those kisses and those tears were quite in keeping with a heart which treated love so easily. She was glad when the ferryboat bumped softly against its pier, and she could get away from the great stream of which the very smells and sounds would now begin to make her think of him. She wished there was another means of returning home. She wished he had gone by train. She wished— At the door of the studio building she was seized with a great terror. She began to understand what it was she had come to do. She had come to give herself up. She was to say, in fact, "'Here I am. Take me.' And he would take her, if he hadn't already taken someone else. The betrayal of a husband who was hardly a husband was no longer in her mind— she was appalled at this yielding of herself. Yet she did everything as she had been accustomed to do it, and entered the studio by the door she generally used. At first she thought there was no one there. Certainly the other woman was not there, and that was so far a relief. Slowly, cautiously, she made her way between the brocades, old furniture, and pedestals. Then she saw Hubert, and Hubert saw her. She stood very much as a deer stands when surprised in the bracken, head erect, eyes curious. Till he gave her a sign, she made no movement to go further. And for a minute he gave her no sign. He only remained seated and looked. He looked with a sketch and pencil in his hand. He had been occupied in touching something up. But she couldn't mistake it. It was the girl in the Byzantine chair. Her heart, which seemed to swell to thrice its size, thumped painfully. Then, at last, a smile broke over his face, lifting his moustache and mounting to his violet eyes. He didn't speak. He didn't move. He only looked, hushed, enraptured, as the hunter at the startled deer. End of chapter 11